Welcome to the Seafood Matters Podcast. I am your host, Jim Cowie. In each episode, we'll dive into the world of seafood, and by chatting with fishermen, fishery scientists and seafood chefs, we'll highlight the importance of seafood in our daily lives, economy and environment. Whether you catch your own seafood, love cooking it, or want to learn more about where your fish comes from, you'll find it all here on the Seafood Matters Podcast. This episode features Kevin Dalgleish, a renowned chef classically trained by the legendary Anton Edelman at the London Savoy. He's also the chairman of the Scottish branch of the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts, which I myself am a member of. After serving as head chef at the prestigious Akergal Tower in the far north of Scotland, Kevin took on the role of executive chef at the Chester Hotel in Aberdeen, where he transformed the culinary landscape with the Signature Food Festival. He now owns Amuse by Kevin Dalgleish, where he specialises in modern international cuisine. Join me exploring seafood from the perspective of one of our country's leading chefs with Kevin Dalgleish. This is Seafood Matters. Well, Kevin Dalgleish, welcome to Seafood Matters podcast. Thanks, Jim. You're a border lad, and since I've known you, you've been as far north in, in the country as you could possibly f- find yourself. You're now on the east side of it. Where did it all start? Well, obviously, I started in Hoyk uh, in, the, in the borders, Queen of the Borders, as they call it. Um, you know, I started when I was 15, 16, and I got this little job in Hoyt called the Rendezvous Bistro. And um, I had a really good chef there, Ian Cunningham, who um, he, he'd worked in the Dorchester and he'd been to London. And so he was edging me to go to London. Um, so I got a part-time job there with a day release course in the Borders College. And it all really started from there. Came from Hoyt High School, obviously, rugby orientated. Um, it, you know, I had a chance to this this job. And I think I probably told you before, Jim, was uh, obviously Jim um, Telfer was the director. Um, and I had to say to him on a Saturday morning to say that I had to give up my rugby career um, to give uh, a chance to work in the Rendezvous Bistro, which didn't go too, down too well. That must have been hugely influencing in your, as a person anyway, because am I right in saying there was another well-known rugby icon that you were in the same school? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, the other the other big uh, influence in my career was um, was Bill McLaren, obviously one of the biggest commentators of uh, of all time in, in, in the rugby world. And I can mind have been in, in London and, you know, he was on the, on the he was uh, commentating for the Six Nations and I would say, oh, he was my PE teacher. And no one would believe me, you know, Jim Telford is your, your, your rector at the school and Bill McLaren, your PE teacher at the school. So two massive... Uh, influential guys at, at the high high school, which I think you always take bits and pieces from everyone. I think uh, in your life. What did your What did you do as a child? Uh, I mean, I, 
being brought up in Hoyke, I think it was it was quite a lively town then. The mills were booming. You know, you had Pringle, Island Scott, uh, Hoyko, all these you know massive mills. So it was a great place to to be brought up. Um, you know, and I did play rugby. I like my dad was a great footballer. He liked football, and obviously, as you know, Rangers was the the kind of chosen team that gets handed handed down to you. Um, but you know, I I did like rugby. I played rugby until for the school. Um, and the primary school, which was which was great. And then obviously, you've got to think what you want to do. There was there was no real rugby money then. There was no money money in, in much sport apart from maybe football. So you have to make a decision. And my decision was to to, to take this job at the Rendezvous Bistro. And you know, from fifteen, I started work there. Yeah. So there was no chef chefing in in, in your early days. Well, I think. My dad's brother Ramsey, he had uh, a few pubs and uh, hotels in Edinburgh. So he had in the sixties, he had the Rutland Hotel, which was quite influential because they always always kind of started the kind of pub trade, bar lunch trade, and um, that was the first kind of place. That, or he used to say to me, he was one of the first guys to start that because everyone was just drinking in those days. Food was just a a, a, a secondary thing, but. Um, so there was always that aspect of hospitality within the family although not my immediate family as such. Okay. And what did your dad do and your mum? So my dad was a policeman, um, and he was obviously a policeman for 35 years until he retired, um, which was helpful in one point, but not so great in other points. But, you know, uh, and my mum, she just helped clean at the police station, so it was it was quite a... We lived right next to the police station, so it was quite a nice little place to live, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And and is it London you went from the borders? Yeah, I mean, when I was 19, um, so I'd been at the Rendezvous Bistro for about four and a bit years, done a, a day release course, as I said, at the Hoik, at the Borders College. And then I used to write, I, I used to mind buying the, you know, the Caterer magazine when it was, used to be really thick and it was full of jobs. So I used to, I used to love logos, so I used to write away to all these different, Hotels, not really knowing coming from like, what what they were or who they were or what they were, what they stand for, and I wrote away to maybe half a dozen hotels. And about two weeks later, I got this response from the Savoy in London. Uh, obviously, there's no email then, um, no really mobile phones as such. Still got this nice letter back, and uh, it was inviting me down for a, an interview in uh, the Savoy in London along the Strand. So I just went down for, it was a four-day interview, went down, stayed there for three days, and then I was expecting to go down and get offered the job straight away, but the chef at the time, Anthony Edelman, he says, we'll get back to you, thinking, oh, no, I've totally, totally screwed up here. But right enough, about a week later, I got a, a letter asking if I wanted to start the Savoy about three months later, which was great. So, But then reality kind of kicks in, you think, oh, Christ, I've got to go to London, coming from Hoyk, so... Yeah, that's where it all started, to be honest. So you, so really, you started in the Savoy. Yeah, nineteen years old, walking down, walking down. I can always remember. I got the tra- the sleeper train from Carlisle with two big cases. Walk down, walk along. I can always remember walking along the Strand, two cases. You know, you're, you can remember. I imagine coming from Hoyke, not really being in London or any city. It's maybe apart from Edinburgh, or Glasgow in your life. You think. Christ, what have I done here? But you shouldn't get into it, you know, once you start making friends and the first few months is hard, but once you get into it, it's, it's absolutely fine. It must have been hugely exciting. 
Well, working in from a kitchen from three people to, I think it was 89 chefs, I think, all the different uh, sections at the Savoy, and that's just the river restaurant, restaurant, uh, kitchen. It was certainly an eye-opener. And I can remember my first day, because I, I know you were going to probably ask me, was, you know, you can imagine the Savoy kitchen is massive. And they all have the different, you know, sections. They have the, the portage section, they have the sauce, they have the fish, uh, they have the, the vegetable section, roast section, pastry. You know, you name it, they've got it, butchery. Um, so I was in the veg section for the first three months and the chef to party there said to me, Kevin, go and get me a ladle. So I just walked up to next again session, uh, section and grabbed a ladle. And of course, the chef to party in that section just grabbed me by the necktie because obviously you had to wear neckties in those days. He says, get your own effing ladle. And I went, ah, okay. And obviously, you know, your, your first day you're getting... Threatened like that, you're going, oh, so he's, he had a slight tear in my eyes, like, Christ, I better, I better wise up here. So, um, and he, he surely wise up quite quick. <laughs> so, you, when you say you wise up, what do you take the ladle when he's not looking? <laughs> well, he can't do that. He got to be any sharp in the morning. But I can remember I was there for around three or four months. Um, and I, first, I stayed in Camden Town, so you have to get up quite early. Because you have to start at six in the morning. The all the chef party started at six. So one day I thought oh, I'll maybe get wise, and you know I finished late, and I went and got all the pots and pans from the plum section and put them in the, hid them under all the ovens in the in the veg section. Of course, I came in at half half six, and all the rest of the guys were looking for the rest of the pans. Of course, I'd hid them in all the ovens, so I just pulled them out of the ovens and had all the best pans. So um, I wasn't allowed to do that again, and just in case uh, I never came in the next again day. So, yeah, you just got to be wise. And I think, you know, people say there's a lot of bullying in kitchens, but I think I'm quite sure there, there, there was, and I'm sure there still is, but I think it does, that kind of form of bullying, I think it does kind of sharpen you up and wise up. And um, and a lot of chefs just don't tolerate it anymore. But I certainly seen quite a lot. And did you go from the Savoy to Akrakultowit as chef? No, after the Savoy, I left. I was there for about three and a half years, and I got this job. Um, I just, I was just feeling I needed to leave London. I wanted to get back. Well, because I used to see all the great produce coming in, and we'll, we'll probably touch that later. All the fantastic produce coming from Scotland into the stores. You know, the, there was amazing smoked salmon. There was all the salmon. You know, probably fresh from. You'd probably sit down from scrubs at one point, Jim, I'm quite sure. But, you know, seeing all this amazing produce come in from Scotland, and I says, maybe I want to go back to Scotland and, and work closer to this produce. And that's where I think my love of produce and, and local suppliers really kicked in because he's seen this, you know, they take great pride in sourcing produce at Savoy. And I think that really stuck with me throughout my career. Um, so I went to the west coast of Scotland and, and got a job at the Marine Highland in Troon. So that's when I went after the Savoy. Um, probably, and I had another job lined up at the um, at the Pompadour restaurant with uh, Jeff Bland at, at the time, but the, the the money was no very great, and you had to live out as well, which in Edinburgh those days was 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 as expensive when you had one hundred and twenty pound a week. So the the marina had offered me slightly more, and it was living, which was slightly more attractive, but. In hindsight, I should have played the Pompadour restaurant because they were obviously, you know, they were gunning for a Michelin star then. Um, but the menu was great. I, I met in with a, a, a great chef 
Richard Sturgeon, who um, I still keep in contact with, and he kind of put me through the paces there, um, and it was great. Because it's funny, because my first day, one of the, the, the chefs says, oh, where you came from? I said, I went, the, the Savoy. And they went, oh, yeah, the Savoy in here. I went, no, no, the Savoy in London. So the, the kind of kind of stepped back and went, oh, Christ, what's this guy doing here? But it was uh, it was actually a great place to learn, and, you know, I could relax a bit better there. And I had good fun there, you know, it was good. There, for the like uh, who I've, I've met with you, Anton Edelman, people like that are almost iconic. There must be a, a fantastic influence on a guy's career. Yeah, as I said earlier, you know, you, you take, I think you spoke You spoke about, you know, Bill McLaren, you speak about Jim Telfer, you know, the, all these guys are, you know, they're, they're in the top of their game, I would have thought. And I think if you take a little bit from each person in your life that you admire, and you know, Anthony Lemon was—he was—he was a great motivator. He was, you know, obviously a great chef. But to my, you can remember eighty-five chefs in that kitchen, you know, and there's a lot of, what I would say, egos as such to try and control. So even to control that alone is 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 a is a is, a, is amazing to do that. Never mind putting a thousand meals out a day. But then you get to the to the the marine. It's I think we had about twenty chefs, yeah, twenty five chefs. But you know, really taking care of the food there. The food was, you know, the budgets were obviously different, but the produce was the same. Um, we still bought the best stuff you could buy, um, and that was a trend throughout my life. Uh, catering life, I think it's you're always sourcing the best ingredients and working kitchen. If I can give any advice to anyone, working kitchens that take real pride in sourcing the best. Um, best ingredients and people get confused with saying the best must be the most expensive I don't mean that I mean just the best getting close to the sources you can and try and source the best that doesn't have to be the most expensive I, you know as you all say and it's great it's good to have people influential people who can can influence your career but at the end after all that, in fairness to yourself, Kevin, you've almost built that of yourself now. And I see you at that, at that level. And one of the things you mentioned with local produce, I would have to take my... I always have done since I've met you because I... Well, obviously, when you worked at the at Agrigal Tower... I was well aware of the fact you would, you could have gone anywhere you wanted and negotiated a good price and been quite corporate as far as getting suppliers to come down to a price that you wanted to pay. But I would have to give you credit and say you always supported locals. Remember, you always got your beef local in Wick. You always got your fish and scraps there. I th- I used to think that was fantastic, considering the power you would have had to get a really good deal off some of the bigger suppliers. Yeah, I mean, when I went to Akago, it was a different, completely different place I'd ever worked before. It was, as you know, it was an amazing place to work, and we had some great clients there. We had, you know, as you say, Vodafone. We had, you know, Rolls Royce. We had, you know. 
an American hierarchy came over. You know, anyone it was anyone came to Akigal Tower, but no one really knew about it, which was probably one of the best things. And we had to, you know, these people were coming from, you know, all over the world. So our food had to match up to any of the restaurants that they would like to eat within that, um, in, in, that in that scene. And so, I mean, and I, I said I bought local, and I bought local for two reasons, really. I think the most important one for me, it was the best in the world anyway. You know, you look at Caithness, they've got the best crab in the world, they've got the best lobsters in the world. You know, the fish and shellfish is, is um, the best in the world. You've got game from Berrydale, you had the beef from, you know, the May Select that we used to get, but it was just Caithness beef. You know, everything was on our doorstep, so why would I have to go out the county to do anything but that? It would have been easier for me to get it from, say, like, a, a, a national supplier and get a good deal, but, you know, why, why did I need to do it? Because they were just buying it from Caithness anyways to go back. I can remind sometimes some guy is saying to me that local hotels there, they'll buy it from a company called, you know, a national supply company where they would buy it from Caithness. You'll go all the way down to Edinburgh to come all the way back up next again day. And I thought, why would he do that? But I mean, I think the produce in Caithness alone, I mean, we still buy bits and pieces from Caithness even now and again. Um, and I even buy some stuff direct from Orkney, which obviously scallops, and we still use that little butcher in, in Orkney, um, which we buy bits and pieces from. But I think if you but if you really like your suppliers, they look after you, um, and you can trust them. It's all about building up trust, and you know they'll send you the best at the can, and they'll give you the best fair price at the can. And I think that's the really relationship really need to 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 um to build up. And. Um. After going from Savoy's to Ackerville Towers and things like that, you must feel very proud. I I have a huge respect for your career, and I think it's wonderful now that you've actually got your own restaurant. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I never even thought about having because, you know, the sheer cost, as you know yourself, that to put something like that together... Is 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 just an endless pit at some points, um. But you know, after coming to Aberdeen and working at the Chester for ten years, I think it gave me a great platform. I think I think because you know we had a great restaurant at the, at the Chester, um. We built up great clients at the Chester, and then obviously after COVID, we the change kind of tacked a bit. So that's what gave me the opportunity to do that and open the door, um. So I think anything of COVID. COVID kind of makes you think what you really want to do in your life. I'm quite sure everyone's had those thoughts. And this opportunity arose and I thought about it and then I, I said, no, no, I'm happy where I am. And then it came again and my wife, Kerry, says, well, you're only going to regret it because you know you're going to do it at one point. So then I says, well, there's nothing. I can always get another job if it doesn't work out. And here we are. We'd opened up the doors on um, the 1st of July last year so we've been opening up a year and five four months and we've never looked back it's been great we've been busy since day one um and you know touch wood it, we're going to continue to build on that which is you know it's pleasing for me because it's always a risk that, that it's, it's going to fall flat in its face but i think if you just be honest with your customers and cook the food that, that they want and you think that that, that it's good i think you, you shouldn't get a good re reputation I can remember when I started 
with the captain's galley and you actually were my mentor chef when I was in the college. And one of the things you always told me, which I think is a brilliant bit of advice, cook what you like. Yeah, I think I think ninety percent. If you if you if you keep if you keep to the you know, I I mean I was kind of classical chain, so if you keep to that kind of flavors, I think you're not going to go wrong. And I think if you've got a good palate and you're cooking to what you like, ninety percent of the people are like that. Um, if you start going off piste a bit, and I think you're not really happy with that. I think just. Do what you do and, and listen to your guests. I mean, I speak to my guests every night. I'm out on the floor asking how things were. And, you know, once you get, you know, associated with some really good customers and really good businesses, they'll soon tell you what's right and what's no wrong in a, in a nice way, you know, because you're always looking for good feedback and constructive feedback. And as long as you are, are willing to take that on the chin, as I suppose, or, or take it and do something with it, I think you're not going to go far wrong. Are you still sticking with your same ethos now that you're on your own of of doing local supplies, fish and yeah. meat? And... Yeah, even more so now, Jim, I think, because, you know, you've got to keep your finger on the pulse. You've got to, you know, you've got to know exactly what you're buying. Um, and I've always, I've no changed tax if I was being a chef or someone or being on my own. I would do exactly the same, you know, the suppliers know not to send us any kind of not so good stuff because they just send it back and I think our standards are are met you know we look at every single thing that comes through the door to see if it's within our our standards and I think that's how it's great to know your suppliers because they soon know what you need and the produce that you want and this kind of size of fish that you want and you know with odd times that you get you know lobsters that are too big but you know but we'll, we'll sort that out but I think the key thing for me if you can buy or can get as close to the source, like we buy lobsters from down in um, John's Haven, I think, you know, they know exactly what size of lobsters we want. Um, we got lobsters from Stonehaven. He knows exactly what lobster sizes we want within, you know, a couple of hundred grams. You know, the guys at the, the market, uh, he, they know the kind of halibut, the size that we want roughly. So that's exactly for me because it all works out to portion size because, you know, if I've... You know, a halibut for me is is around five to six kilo. I can know what yield I get from that. So that's a good, a little good thing for for chefs starting out to try and you know say to your suppliers, well, that kind of halibut or turbot is is good for me, um, because I know exactly how many portions roughly within you know hundred grams or so. But I think little advice, little things like that really help help me. Uh, what the message I get pick up from that as well Kevin is it gives the whole project a consistency and yes it tells your suppliers and what you're what you demand and what you want but it's also a great message for your staff yeah I think like anything and the kind of level that we cooking and you and you were cooking as well I think Consistency and creature of habit, I think, is is the two key things for 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 restaurants to survive. Because, you know, consistently for me, putting if I'm not there or if, if, if Matthew's there in the kitchen, the most pleasing thing for me to say is get good reports and say, "Oh, I had a great meal last night at Moose." Um, 
and I know for a fact I wasn't in. So that's a, the best thing for me because we've trained the staff properly. Um, you know, we've got we've got everything right. The, the chefs know what they're doing. The front house know what they're doing. Um, and that's pleasing for me that I can take a step back, that I don't have to be there every night of the, of the week because, um, I mean, I'm there 90% of the night time, but as you know, you've got to try and have some some free time as well, especially with a, a kind of young family. So it's important that you, that you feed that knowledge on to your, your next people in the, in the restaurant. That's so true. The last thing you want is, I've actually heard it, I can't remember where it was or who it was, but there was this guy, they were talking about going out for a meal, and they says, oh, don't go on a Wednesday, the chef has a night off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think it's, and if, I mean, if you know, if I was to fall ill for a few weeks, and you, you can't even depend on your, your business not to survive if you're not there. So I've set it up so, you know, I can take time off I, I as long as I'm there you know, 90% of the time because it's easy for you to, drop off the off the wagon. Um but I'm there, you know, every day. I don't mind being in the kitchen every day because you know, as yourself, running a business, it's not just about cooking, it's about, you know, you know, looking ahead. You're always looking ahead to do different events. Um we've just launched our Brummy Burns or Robbie Burns uh night for obviously the, the in January. So we're always looking to do different themed events and we do a couple of sporting events every year. So, and we want to keep it different, you know, we just don't want to be the same kind of restaurant day in, day out. We want to keep it interesting for the staff, keep it interesting for me, keep it interesting for the guests. So that's why we're slightly different to any other restaurant in, in, in the city. And are you, for your Burns night, theme night, are you piping the haggis in and all that? Yeah, I mean, last year, Glenn, Glenn Parnell came up and we had a bit of fun and we called it the Brummy Burns night because obviously he's from Birmingham. Um, but this year Glenn can't make it, so we've got um, we've got the ambassadors um, from Glenn Fiddick. so he's going to host the evening, um, and we've got some amazing whiskies that they're going to put through. We've got a whiskey, a thirty-year-old, we've got a twenty-five-year-old, we've got a twenty-one-year-old, and then we've got one in from Balvenie as well. So it's a great mixture from from the from the Grant family that we've got there. So we're going to do five different drams to five different uh, courses, and we'll pipe in the haggis. Um, and we're going to do, uh, you know, we're going to do, we think a little bit different. So we're going to do a little haggis and oxtail ravioli to start with, um, with a little Madeira um, cream sauce, and then we'll do a nice smoked salmon dish, and then we'll probably do a rodier dish, um, and then we'll finish off with, um, if we can get some blood orange, we'll do something with blood orange. So, uh, and then obviously wonderful whiskies and some um, amazing wines as well. So we'll, we'll, we'll mix it up. Will that be whiskey? To match each course. Yeah, we're going to match. Um, we're going to match all the whiskies to the courses, which is which is great. So, so the guys from Glenfiddich are amazing for, uh, for for doing that. So, and they'll match up the the whiskies, and we're, you know, the, the a lot we're doing that more and more now. We're doing a lot of whiskey pairings as well as wine pairings. Um, I think we've done about eight or nine, um, and we've got a few booked to early this next year as well, which is. Um, which is great because we we've we've purposely built our whiskey um, list up and our wine list um, just because you know in Aberdeen Aberdeenshire we've got great tourists coming in now you know I've noticed in the last year or two years the golf really taken off here um, the whiskey trails are really taken off so we want to try and capture that market when they come um, and be ready for them so we've purposely 
upskilled our whiskey list and our wine list to to you know to showcase what the region's got and and Scotland I suppose is such. You know, Kevin, I have to say I'm delighted to listen to you because what what um, really impresses me and comes r- r- rattling home is. You're a, you've been a chef pretty much all your life. All your working life, you've been a chef. And you've worked in some of the most outstanding places. But what fascinates me listening to you just now is you're talking as a businessman, which is so important. <laughs> yeah, but I think I've, I've probably learned a bit from you as well, Jim, because you know, in your day, you're a good guy, a business guy too. So I think speaking to you and, and talking about food to you I think I always kind of was interested on that kind of side because, and I think to be a chef or to be a, a successful chef, you've got to run the kitchen like a business. And I think I've always done that. Um, you know, is it from, is it banter for a, for, for a, for a, um, halibut price or a haddock price or, and then you've got to try and get the yield and the portion correct. And I think, you know, I think that just kind of stems through the business, I think. And then, and you've always worked, and I've always, I think I let Bannister and John Bannister, again, they were really pioneers of their, of their time. I think they were well ahead of their, their time. Archigold Tower was a, an amazing place. And I think John and Let Bannister were, were two of the most switched-on people I'd ever met in my life. You know, from taking the ruins of a castle to make it into a, an amazing world destination. Um, and, and just outside Wick, too. So, um, and I think taking bits and pieces from them and you know, they'd done a golf weekend with Ronan Rafferty and, and, and Scott Cranfield was his trainer. And we had um, Guy Butterwick up doing the wines from Claret E. And we just did exactly the same two months ago. We managed to get Ronan up and do a night. And and he done the wines and, and, and Guy came up from London to do the wines as well. And I think it was just, you know, to do a weekend that we did that in the restaurant, which was successful. That came from Archigal Tower 20 years ago. You know, Ronan would do a, a weekend and host a weekend with great wines and great food. And to emulate that there, obviously, will be a, a lot smaller scale. But that's the kind of stuff I learned from, from John or Lett Bannister. And I think, you know, just to learn little things and make life dif- different from restaurants, you know. I think you want to make it interesting. I totally agree with you there. I just often used to think about... The vision John and Arlette Bannister must have had, what what they saw there, and obviously they were looking at factors like, although it was wick remote, well there was a airport close by, all the all the uh, uh, rail link, all the important things, but also, I mean I had the good fortune to have some involvement with Ackerkill Tower, which I really enjoyed. And when you were doing the Food of Love weekend and you had some amazing chefs, real top, top chefs. And that's one of the things I quite often, very often, was impressed with talking to them. They, they were, the successful ones were quite corporate-minded as well. Yes, I, I mean, I still sometimes can't believe the kind of chefs that we got up to like. You know, I think I must have been in my twenties at the time, twenty in the late twenties, and to try and get these chefs up, and and we weren't paying them any fees as such. We were, we were just phoning them over, and asking them if they would come up. And I think they were quite intrigued, to be honest. Why, why are we going up to work to this castle? 
And I can always remember Anton uh, Mosselman, you know, such a great chef. And you know, and you talk about businessmen, I think he's probably one of the best um, for being really corporate and really business-minded. So you take a little nuggets from him. And I think he invited me down to his um, place in Bulgaria, uh, his, his little church there, which was an amazing place. And, he, you know, he showed me around and, you know, he had the Mont Blanc room that would sit two people. He'd have the Bentley room that would sit with a big oak table with the Bentley seats. And, you know, and he said to me, these companies came to him to do them out. Do you know what I mean? So I think even little things like that, I says, well, one day I might do that here. So, you know, fast forward 25 years, 30 years, you know, Fetter Cairn have been really good to us. They help us, I know it's a different level, but, you know, they, they've invested in us a little bit to make a lovely whiskey cabinet and produce those, those whiskies. So, you know, what I remembered 25 years ago with Anton Mosserman is, is came to fruition, you know, now. So if we just speak to these guys and, you know, we have to, we have, we have Nick Nairn, we have Paul, um, Paul Rankin. Paul Rankin. We had Phil Howard. We had, you know, the, all the guys from the square. We had Brett from the Ledbury. Um, That's right. We had a- Angela Hartnett. You know, all these guys that came up and, you know, they really enjoyed themselves up in Wick because they'd never seen anything like it. Uh, Richard Corrigan. It's funny when, when we got Richard to the, and then we started it at the Chester with it, it's slightly different with the Signature Festival. And I can remember speaking to um, Richard Corrigan and Richard says, Graham was with me and he says, have you ever been to, to Aberdeen before? And he says, oh, I've been to Aberdeen once when I, I was doing a gig in Wick and I had to leave early to go and watch the rugby. I says, yeah, that was with me, Richard. And then obviously he was burst out laughing because he, he had to go to Croke Park to watch the rugby halfway through the halfway through the dinner. But, uh, but it's even meeting these guys, you know, that was, you know, for them to come up to our little kitchen in, in Wick and cook some amazing meals um, with us was was great. And it was great for the staff, and it was great for the suppliers up in Ware, up in Wick and Thursday and Scraps. So I can remember, I don't know if he'd maybe said to you, I think, when we had uh, Anton Musselman up, and he couldn't believe that the trawlers went out for such a long time because he's used to the little day boats down in Cornwall, and he says, I can't believe the trawlers are out for maybe seven up to seven days. Um, he couldn't get that into his head. He thought the boat went out, caught the fish and came back the same day. Yeah. Uh, the thing that fascinated me about Anton Mossiman was there were actually a market in Scrabster on that day. So I, That's right. And I, I was sort of doing a seafood slant on the on that weekend. And so, well, good luck. That On that occasion, we, we ha- actually had an auction going and he just absolutely loved the sort of vibrancy and whatnot. And I, th- I was fascinated. He came up, he obviously saw Halibut and Turbot and John Dory's all lined up with iced and fish boxes waiting for the auction to, to waiting for them to be sold. And he leaned over, and obviously, the way he's, you could see that the wee wheels were going round, and he was thinking. But where the businessman came out, he says, what do you pay for halibut up here? (laughs) (laughs) Hoping to it by 30%. (laughs) (laughs) It was nothing about what would you cook, what did you do with it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think even myself now, I think you've got to have that business mind as well as, you know, I'd say percentage-wise, I'm probably in the kitchen 70% of my working day 
and then thirty percent on everything else. You know what I mean? But you've got to. Well, I say that that's within, you know, a day's business. But I mean, I get up in the morning, you're straight on your emails, you're straight on speaking to people. So I mean, I don't really count that as a, as work. But I think you've just got to be. You've got to be everywhere in your businesses. You know. Absolutely, and the one thing you don't want, I would say, is I hate the very word or anything associated with it, cheap or or discount. Yeah. I, all, I yeah. used to always, myself, I always said, Kevin, whatever anybody feels about it, it's an honest price because I know the standard and world standard food, as you mentioned there yourself, that, that we would be, we get up here. So yeah. I always felt it was never stacking high and selling cheap. No. I think we're classed to be quite expensive in Aberdeen, which which I'd rather that than, than to be cheap. But we're just honest. We're no we're no ripping eyes anywhere, I guess. We you know, we buy as I said earlier, we buy the best. You know, we've got Turbot coming tomorrow, we've got Halibut, we've got Will Bass, we've got, you know, scalps that come from Orkney every every week, you know, we buy the best, the freshest lobster and crab that come through the door every every other day from, from just down the road. So you know, we buy the best that we can, um, and we don't do that much to it because we want the, as you say, we want the the flavours and the natural flavours what I like cooking to to sing through. So um, that's that's all we do. I think we try and you know we've not really could smoke much about cooking, but I think my 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 best way of cooking, I think, is just to let the flavours or the natural flavours speak for themselves. I think. You know, you don't want to overcomplicate cooking. I think cooking shouldn't be overcomplicate complex. It should just be natural. I think that's that's how I see it. But don't you see as well? Unfortunately, you hear people which I that were dis, intensely dislike the term old school or old fashioned when you talk about respect and honesty and that. But you mentioned it earlier, the word honesty, and do you not feel it, what it comes down to, I feel listening to you and thinking through what you're saying, Kevin, your customers are, trust you, but you also yeah. trust your suppliers and they trust you, so it's trust all the way. Yeah, I mean, that's why I like getting as close, I keep saying close to the source, but it's getting as close to the, you know, you know the, the the farmer. You know we've even down to the little lady that uh, Katie that does the eggs. You know we we're you know the the guy that, that helps us to make our bread. We're all you know we're all friendly. We you know speak about stuff if if they've got a problem. You know our bread supplier sometimes brings our lobsters up and then vice versa. So you know we try. It's a small community really. If you think about, especially in Aberdeenshire, it's a small small network of really good suppliers that we try and keep together. And you know I don't jump suppliers from, from one week to the next because I save a pound. Um he could do that, but it'd be it'd be a nightmare. But I think, you know, some days that we'll lose, sometimes they'll win. And I think you've just got to be honest with everyone and say, you know, as long as as long as you're you're honest with me, I'll be honest with you and and it's at the end of the day we'll we'll just buy the best that we can and um and that's all we do. Yeah. It's it's so important, but I always felt as well, Kevin, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons you stick to local suppliers yourself, but 
not only it's it's not a case of I don't think price comes into it, but one of the things that I thought was so important as far as the quality is concerned, and on many an occasion I had chefs up in Scrabster. Unfortunately, although he's not with us now, a good friend to use, Andrew Fairley, was one of them. And one mm. of the things that they could never get over, Kevin, was, which um, you, I know that you're well uh, switched on to, the shelf life we got. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially you, I mean, even we see it here in Aberdeen, I think if you can get as, as, as fresh as you can, I mean, you eat scallops coming every day, they're still pulsating. You know, we only buy as you should, anyways. Buy buy shellfish live, and but it's 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 just extremely live when we get it. And something the the fish is too fresh. You know, I mean, we sometimes I've been I've been filleting a, a halibut, and it's actually still too, it's a bit tough almost. You know what I mean? So you sometimes need to let it relax a bit a, a day or so, um, just to get the the best best out of it. You know, it's I think sometimes it can be too fresh sometimes. Well, the rigor mortis is not out of it. And people think, oh, it's only humans that get at rigor mortis sets in when a body, a human dies. But that, it's every, everything, every, whether it's got a fin or legs or wings, <laughs> rigor mortis sets in. Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't, if you try to cut it before that and take it off the bone, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I quite often had people making comments like that, and they couldn't believe when I answered. They would be looking at me when I answered them, saying, "Well, the biggest problem we have in freshness is it's too fresh." Yeah, <laughs> sometimes too I, I fresh. Can to cut. Times, sometimes I can mind being at Akigal and we'd get a turbot or a or or a halibut through, and it was exactly. I mean, sole was probably the hardest one to, to try and to try and leave for a while because it was too fresh, and it would just be. You know, tough, almost like a tough steak. Um, and you just have to try and keep it for the next again day. But um, yeah, it's not a bad problem to have, to be honest. What kind of what 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 would you do? What kind of dish would you serve with a nice fresh halibut off the market? Oh, I mean halibut. We've got halibut actually coming in tomorrow. But I mean halibut. I tell you what, we did do actually yesterday. Um, sorry, last week. We had little nuggets of, uh, we had some sea, sea trout, we had some halibut, and we had some wild bass, and we actually made a little, um, and we had some lovely uh, prawns and some squid, and we actually did a lovely um, the orzo pasta, and we made a, a nice shellfish beast and cooked the orzo pasta through, almost we'd do like a paella, almost such with rice, um, and it had some treats oil, and um, we made a lovely pasta, little shells. And we just pan, like, pan fried all the little bits of fish, a little bit, a little nugget of sea trout, a little nugget of uh, halibut, a little nugget of um, bass. And we almost done, recreated a little paella dish, but it was with a little orzo pasta. And I had it on Sunday for my lunch. And I absolutely, you know, sometimes you just don't, you know, you just take a step back and say, that was absolutely delicious because you could taste every part of the fish. You could taste the bass, you could taste the halibut, you could taste the sea trout. And it was all just, masked and flavoured with this wonderful um shellfish orzo which was 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 great. So little things like that we, we do but um 
But I think even we've got Turbot coming tomorrow. We probably, I mean, I just cook it. I love the little brown shrimps or a little, you know, a little manure. I mean, we had lovely Dover soles in a few weeks ago, which were like hen's teeth. Um, and we just done it with a little marinier, uh mussels and, and things like that. It was absolutely, we poached it. We turned it off the bone and we, we steamed it and poached it um, as opposed to just pan frying it. But we poached it with a, a mussels. I think mussel stock is one of the most flavoursome things you can get. Um, we just reduced it with white wine, loads of fennel and um, celery and all that kind of aromatics, parsley, dill, and then just make a little nice little cream sauce, finish it, reduce it and, and make it really aerated and just poach the fish in that and it's absolutely fantastic. I just love listening to the way you're, the terms you're using and almost before, the, the word before, every bit of fish you mentioned you have the word, uh, the pa- just your passion. It comes yeah, I fully. just get excited. <laughs> when you, when you, it, the word lovely. <laughs> yeah, lovely. Yeah. It is lovely. <laughs> Which is lovely to that, hear. No, it's, I mean, I just get, you know, I just love cooking. I just love cooking, especially fish, I think, because it's such a delicate thing, delicate, uh, it's quite delicate to cook. And, you know, it's, I think fish cookery is far more, it's, it's far harder than, than anything meat-wise because you can obviously let... I mean, we do let uh, fish rest as well, but I think there's more you know, error in fish overcooking than, than, than... We always cook our fish slightly under, to be honest, which sometimes has a problem with some people, but that's the way we cook it, and it's there's nothing wrong with that. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, but it's just trying to educate people. I think the biggest thing in Scotland, I think, is to try and educate people, and I, I don't mean in a, in a, in a kind of punty way or anything like that, I think we need to try and it, because I think historically Scotland, and I've said this for years, you know, Scotland's got the best produce in the world, but the worst diet in the world, so we need to try and educate people to eat better and eat properly and, you know, eat things that should, the way that should should be cooked and we'll not change our cookery for anyone and if people want to send it back to you know, to have it a bit cooked a lot more that's fine, but, you know, we'll never overcook fish and we'll, we'll cook fish properly and I think it's always a it's always a being in my life, we will say, "Oh, it's it's undercooked." When actually, it's they should just eat it and, and enjoy it. You know. There's a woman come into the captain's galley once and says to me, "She says, thank God, I've just discovered there's more to Scotland than haddock.'" <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with haddock, but I think that's right. You know, I mean, but where but where can you go? You could probably name, I reckon. 15 restaurants in Scotland. If you went for a night, you know, one of my favourite things is, is a wonderful poached piece of salmon. You know, you don't really get much wild salmon these days, but if you imagine a wonderful, either wild sea trout just poached in a beautiful stock, you know, slight, just warm, pink on the inside. Where do we get that? It's, it's difficult to get people, because people just overcook it, and I think it's very difficult to, to, to get a nice piece of fish like that in Scotland, which is a shame. And keep it simple with a nice mayonnaise, a nice fresh mayonnaise. Yeah, I mean, I love the springtime when we have, you know, you get the sea trout coming in and you have the asparagus there and you have the jersey rolls. I think that three combinations, asparagus, jersey rolls and sea trout is one of the best combinations you'll get. And I always look forward to that time in the kind of springtime when the first of the jersey rolls come through um, to make a, you know, a nice jersey roll um, fixie or a nice jersey roll foam. And just poach nicely the the uh, the, the sea trout, 
Um, I think that combination is, is just fantastic. So, you know, seasons again, seasonality is a big thing for us at the restaurant. Um, you know, we'll never put, obviously, things asparagus at this time of year, but I think, and I would look forward to the different nuggets of produce you get through the, each season, which, you know, I'm already looking forward to the blood oranges and, and the rhubarb coming through in end of January. So I think, you know, we, this is a kind of time that there's nothing much coming in, but I think you look forward to the kind of January, February time and there's little nuggets of thing coming through that they look forward to put on the menu. It's interesting you say that, Kevin. What does seasonality mean to you? Oh, just as much as cooking local or, or using local supplies, I think seasonality is, is, is up there with buying local because, you know, it's it comes hand in hand. You know, your suppliers are... The, you know the farmer will come to you, or the or the 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 farm down the road will say, "I've got this beautiful spouting broccoli," or we've got little uh, killets at this time of year that they'll put up to us. Um, I think, and I think working with local people, they'll say, "I've got this next week," or "I've got that that week," or "That's coming the following month." So that's how we look at our menus. That's how we devise our menus because we'll speak to our suppliers. And say, what have we got next month? What's what's the the, the star ingredient next next month that we can put on our menus? Um, and you know, you usually get a pattern, and we and we've got a pattern now what what we like to use and what we know that's coming, and um, and that's how we 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 do our menus. We we'll, we'll be determined on the season and what we've got local. That's how we that's how we write our menus. What when you from the places you've talked about. Ackerville Tower before that, the Savoy. What sort of, just say, banquets and things like that, what sort of numbers have you cooked for or been involved? I mean, the Savoy was, like, ridiculous. I mean, we could do... We could do 750 in a Lancaster. We could do over a 1,000 a day at the Savoy. Um, do you know what I mean? So... But saying that the Chester, we could do five hundred a day. Um, you know, even at the restaurant, we could. We've got uh, well, this this Friday they call it Mad Friday. We've got one hundred and sixty-two booked, which is a lot for us. Um, but that's three settings throughout the day, which you have to capitalise on that. But I think uh, yeah, the numbers. But I think it's just being organised, and I think working in different sizes of places and different types of places helps you through the career. You know, to be organised. I've always feel I was fairly organised. Um, if it's running a, a kitchen or just running a section or, or running, just one little section within a kitchen, I think you've got to be dead organised. I think if there's if you're organised, you're you're going to be fine. I think that's uh, I can remember that from you, and I think that's uh, the difference between a cook and a a chef. I like the idea of the cook, but a chef with his prep, you know, it's all about prep, and 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 they they have a system so organised. I think it's wonder. It's it's a pleasure to even watch guys like yourself the way you we are organised so when you you are hit with big numbers it's never a mad panic last minutes because you're no I think I think for me you know and, and what I've tried to install in the restaurant is if we do 100 covers it's going to be exactly the same as we do 20 covers and that's what we need the food that we'll put out on Friday although it's mad Friday 
we'll put as much care and detail to every single dish for that 163 people or we would for 20 people the following week. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the that's the kind of nod to a, a really good restaurant. It's the same. It doesn't matter if you go when it's really busy or it's really quiet, you'll get the same. And we, all, we talked earlier on about consistency and the the produce and consistency in the prep. But if your dishes are consistently good, doesn't matter how busy or how quiet you are, I think that's the key to, to for repeat custom because people, as you say, they, they know your style, they know your 99.9, you're going to get a decent meal. It'll be the odd time that something happens, obviously, but um, it'll not be for the lack of trying to do things right. Yeah, well, that's that takes the work, that goes back to the the honesty. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to eat. I think people come, we, we get a lot of repeat custom, which is really pleasing to us um, because they know, and we got a lot of business guys coming in and, and business dinners and, and they're obviously entertaining clients and they don't be embarrassed by, you know, a, a, a poor service or a poor, poor piece of uh, food. You know, they want to entertain their clients and maybe strike a deal or, you know, you never know what business meetings are having in the restaurant, but and we've just got to be honest and do our best. And I think what, I've noticed now is is you've got to step outside the kitchen with you know being a chef. It's no good hiding in the kitchen and hoping everything's going to be fine. You've got to you know take the bull by the horns and and you know demand the same respect you have in the kitchen to your front of house staff and say this is what it needs to be like. This is the service that we need to be like. This is what we want to do and set our stalls out to try and you know the front of house staff need to be on point just as much as the kitchen guy because. You know, we've never really touched on service, but I think service is just as important as, as, as serving a good meal because they're your friend, but they're your eyes and ears of the restaurant. You know, that's what people see. And I think if you get bad service, it doesn't matter if you've got a great, you know, piece of fish or whatever it may be. If the service is poor, they're not going to come back. What's your sort of code of conduct for a commercial kitchen? We just, you know, what I've done in the kitchen, and I've purposely done it, you know, I've always said that a kitchen should be like a football team almost. You try and get different people within in your in in your brigade. We've got we've got an, an amazing, uh, two really amazing, well, three really amazing young people in the kitchen. Um, we've got Phoebe who just won um, she won the Springboard National Finals last year, um, and we've just taken her on as an apprentice. So she's the the youngster in the kitchen, and we've got you know we've got um, Leslie and Ross, who's the, the two kind of chef to parties that are up. They're still young, but they're absolutely fantastic within their own rights. Um, we've got Armin, who's the other chef to party, um, and then Matthew's the head chef. But they're all young people want to learn. They're keen, and you know I need to pass on my knowledge and my you know organisation and 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 if I've got any skill, well. Because I need to pass it on to them. Because hopefully, you know, we'll nurture them for the next generation. And, you know, and, and I think we've got to bring the young people through. So we've purposely taken an apprentice. We'll hopefully take another one next year. Um, once the people move up the ranks, I think we've got to keep it fresh and you know keep them young and keep them interested. Because we've got to have this next generation of of hospitality people. Because it's hard to find people. Um, and and that's a you know that, that's what I'm about in the kitchen. We want to try and bring the young people in, and you know we give them a good wage, even be they young. But we need to learn them and, and get them into this industry because the industry will fall flat on its face if we don't have the right people here. 
That's admirable because it's. I can just uh, imagine that looking at it from the youngsters' point of view, what a great training they're getting. Yeah, I mean it's 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 one to one a lot of the time um, because and again I was very conscious of not working them over hard. I mean, you know, when I was when I was young, probably Phoebe's age, I was at the Savoy and I would start at six in the morning. I would sometimes finish at eleven at night, and you would get half an hour break or what it may be. But those kind of days are 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 few and far between now. Hopefully, because it does take me. I can always mind the saying: if you work a year at Savoy, you really work two and a half because of the hours that you put in. But I think that's that kind of makes a lot of people, but it also breaks a lot of people. So in our kitchen, we just get the guys to work four long days. Uh, they work about 42 hours a week. Uh, they get three days off, and, and that's how we work it in the kitchen. And because um, they need they need to try and have a, that life balance. Because if we don't get if we don't have that life balance, I think we're going to lose a lot of good people to the industry. And I think we've got to make it more attractive. To younger people um, and get them in because a lot of people do enjoy cooking and they'll do and it's it's a different kettle of fish cooking within a you know a professional kitchen that is in a in a in a kind of home kitchen but if you've got that urge to cook I think we need to urge people to come in and we can't overwork people we can't shout and ball on them I mean we need to give them a, you know a fair chance at enjoying it I think I think that's fantastic to hear that Kevin because the industry which I'm sure you'll agree in certain places, has done nothing to attract people in, into the industry, it's giving people split shifts, not two days off together, and and not not all that well paid. It, it hasn't given the industry, it hasn't done anything for the industry. So to hear you saying that, that's commendable, that people actually can have a life and you, you probably, I'm quite sure, you're no, absolutely no fool, I'm quite sure you probably, from, from, I can hear it in your voice, I think you feel that you get a better return for it, for being fair to them. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I think, you know, it, it does cost the business a lot of money. It does, you know, we could easily, if I was really, you know, really business-minded, or really, you know, we could say, well, you work five days, and, you know, but, but I want, I want, I really care about the, the industry. I really care about the people coming through. So, if I can give a bit back, why be you know a, a lot of less margin on on the wages, uh, or costs a little bit more? I think that's just that. If, if everyone just did that little bit to help the industry, you know, I could easily say I could easily cut away two chefs and we'd we'd run people at the ground and they would have just have to do the work. But I don't want to be that business that that, that drives people at the ground or makes people. You know, don't want to cook or or they get burnt out, as they say. Um, I want it to be a nice, pleasant place to. to you know, I mean, we have our days; it's just hard. But I think on the, on the cooks of the thing, I think we look after our staff as much as we can. You know, we give them you know three days off. They'll they'll work four, sometimes long days. I mean, one one we close half day on a Sunday, which sometimes get four nights off. So you can't even give them a better opportunity than that. As long as as long as they're they're ready for coming into work next again day and we're ready. I, I don't care. It's as long as they're in, enjoying it. And I, I think you want people to enjoy it. I think that's, I enjoy it. So I want people to enjoy it, I think. Yeah. When you say there, about, and I, I know you well enough that I 
I know exactly what you do for the industry and giving something back. Can I ask you, your, not, can I ask you, could you tell our audience about your involvement with the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts? Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been involved with the Royal Academy for the best part, I'd say, 20 years now, I think it's how time flies, but I think it's a great association to be involved with. And I think the chefs that are involved are, are at the top of the game. And, you know, for the first time ever, I was at, went to the golf golf week at Tunbury um, in the summer there, or, or just the late summer. And I was going around the, the golf course with, with John Williams, who was obviously the exec chef of the Ritz. So to do that was a great, great uh Great time because he had his ear for about four hours, which was I don't think he was hugely pleased, but I think it was. But we were just asking questions, and he was actually a great guy to go around the golf, and I'd say my golf improved slightly. But uh, um, but even just be you know because we've all got the same philosophy. We want to teach. We want to you know try and do the you know sustainability. I think all these factors that the the the, the academy and myself um, I have. I think it's, it's it's driven through the academy, and I think you know. And it's a great opportunity to pick up the phone to anyone if you're needing any advice or, or, or even about help. It's great just to speak to these people. And so I mean, they're part of the Scottish Scottish branch, which is which is great, which is in a bit of a, a transitional period. Which hopefully by next year we're going to get it uh, up and running again, which is uh, which should be great. You're in charge. You're in, you're the, in the Scottish branch. But, yeah, I was in charge, but I think it's it's a bit of a flux just now. So we're looking looking to, to liven it up, and we'll have a few meetings maybe next next year to see how we can drive it forward. Because you know everyone's busy, and I think after COVID, we tried to kickstart it through to Zoom calls and things like that. But I think the the Scottish division needs to get more involved with the London branch. I think, and or the rest of the team need to come together, and the guys from London need to have a couple of meetings in Scotland um, as well, just to try and to try and you know break up a bit and we've touched base with a lot of the northern branch um i went down to see paul askew at the uh, the ivy uh, the art house sorry in liverpool so we've had a couple of meetings there which is great so the the northern branch is quite keen to do a little trip up to scotland um i'm trying to have a couple of meetings here as well as go down down to middlesbrough or liverpool or or newcastle it's it is a fantastic organisation and there's a lot for the industry. Funny, I've sold our restaurant and that horrible word retired, but I've kept my membership of the Royal Academy going because I think it's just a it's just something I like being involved in. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the caliber of people that are there, they're, they're, they're all at the top of their game and they're all do that little bit, you know, anything from the, the Doctor Chef School, which we, we have got a couple of schools in Aberdeen that I, I still do. Um, and I've teamed up with a couple of schools to, to try and um, to do that. And I've done something with um, Russell Anderson at just during COVID, which was similar to the Adopter School, um, which Russell's got a, a, a foundation um, which he helps, you know, underprivileged schools and kids and that to take part in sport. And he branched out and asked if I'd do some cooking lessons. So um, it all kind of came came about during COVID, where I would cook every Friday during COVID. I would go in into the Chester and I would cook, you know, fifty meals for for the for the kids, um, and that would go to the families because during COVID, obviously, there was no any school 
school meals. So a lot of the kids were dependent on the school meals to get a hot meal. So every Friday I said I would cook in my in my own time. I would cook every Friday. The Rushlanderson would pick it up in in little vans and they would take it directly to the families through through COVID. And we just done that every every Friday just to give them a a hot meal. It's such on a Friday, and then that continued after after COVID. Once the schools came back. Um, on a Tuesday, on my day off at the Chester, I would I would cook. I would go down to Seaton Community uh, Parish Church, um, and I would do a little cooking lesson for them, and they were absolutely fantastic. The, the, and again, it was just to give them a meal. And you think it's a bit harsh, but some people don't get that. They're lucky enough to have a hot meal every week, so um, that was one of the main reasons that we do it. I'd done it, um, and I'll do that again once we get settled into the restaurant. But you know, you know, being a being a Rangers fan in Aberdeen, I think it's good to help the Aberdeen footballer Russell to help to do things like that, which is which is great. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be shooting too loudly as a Rangers man in in Aberdeen. <laughs> no, but I mean we we do a lot of things for the club, I suppose. And I just like football, to be honest, Jim. Um, and I think you know we do a lot of things for the club. And I can remember my son Robbie when he first arrived on the scene here in Aberdeen. He went to the community trust uh, training, and I, I got away with I think a season with him having the Rangers top on, and then he said, "Dad, Dad, um, all these guys have got Aberdeen tops on." I went, "Right, okay." So at the time, Rangers had a had a a, a red away top, so I put them in that. I think I got a week out of that one, and then obviously <laughs> he he wanted to wear the Aberdeen tops, which I, which I got from, and I says, "Why do you want to put an Aberdeen top?" He says, "Dad, Dad," he says, "I've just got to support my local team." So there you go. So. <laughs> He, he liked Aberdeen for a few years. And does he? Is that well? I'm, I'm hearing the finish for a few years. Do you mean you've got him changed again? No, 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 not at all. He, if he wanted to spot Aberdeen, that was that was his 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 choice. But I think I took him to a Bruce Dortmund game um, two seasons ago, and I think I think that kind of changed his uh, appetite for the for the for football or for Rangers because that was just. I mean, it was one of the best nights I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, I brooks, but yeah, but I mean, he he can support whoever he wants, Jim. Good on you, good on you. And a, a bit lighthearted, with all the numbers and f- lovely food in that. Have you? What's uh, if I could ask you? What's the best and worst compliment <laughs> you've ever had? The best and worst compliment. It's a hard one. I think the best cop. I think the best compliment, Jim, is just to uh, to have a full restaurant and everyone's happy. I think people don't need to sell anything to you. You just need to. Sometimes I come out of the restaurant and just take a step back. I done it on Saturday there with a full restaurant and I could see people laughing and meeting people and you know I think to come to take to spend their hard earned cash in my restaurant and have a good time. I think that's the biggest compliment anyone can give to me. And, um, and probably coming back as well. I can, yeah, exactly that. I mean, you know, we have a lot of repeat customers now, which you know become friends, I suppose. Um, and I think you've got to—that's the biggest compliment for me to, to see people and you know to take time to come to my restaurant and enjoy themselves and come back. I suppose um, uh, worst compliment—I don't know, maybe not coming back. <laughs> I don't know. I've never really had many touch with bad compliments. I think you get the odd one, but. Um, it could be, you know, a piece of fish that's not cooked right, or a piece of meat that's not cooked quite to their liking. But I think, on the whole, I've I've done pretty well. I think. Yeah, good, 
Good. Yeah, and so so what now? What would a day in the life of Kevin Dalgleish be? An average day in the life. Uh, an average day, I think. I get up and first thing I do is check emails, which is probably a bad habit. Um, and then I, you know, obviously I'll go to the restaurant, take the dogs a walk sometimes. But Kerry's very good at doing that. I'll head to the restaurant first. You know, check the the produce that's coming in. Check the staff to see if they're fine. You know. Make sure the restaurant's looking good. I'll touch base with Olivia, who does our marketing and sales, and we'll sit with her for a good maybe half an hour. We'll go through the, the day's business, we'll go through the week's business, then we'll go through the next three months' business to see if we have any events or anything that's coming on then. And then we can start marketing ahead, because we always work maybe three months ahead. And then I'll get into the kitchen for a bit, um, get some prep done, we'll do a bit of lunch, and then after that I'll sometimes come home for an hour or so. Or I'll maybe touch base with Nicola front of house team and and see how they get on with there and how how if we need to market any staff or get any new staff in or staff training or send people away in any courses and then obviously dinner comes along we'll do dinner service and then you know I'll go and speak to the guests after dinner and then help clean down for a bit and then and then head home and that's that's the basis of the day really I think you know there's a bit of bit of bringing there's a bit of marketing a bit of cooking. Um, and who'd have thought it? You know, I mean, you know, I never thought I'd have a restaurant, and you know, even five years ago, I think it's but it opens up opportunities. It opens up obviously different doors. I think the first year, we, well, last year, obviously done the Great British Menu, which was amazing, and that opens up more doors. And I think, um, I think you've just got to try and keep pushing, pushing your brand. I suppose as such, I think you've got to try and push a brand as such, and it is called a brand. And now I think we've got to try and reestablish that brand. And you never know what comes that we're looking at doing a second place maybe next year, um, which will complement our restaurant here, um, which will drive even more people through. So I think it's all exciting. I found anyway, and I'm sure you you feel it yourself going round the tables, as you said, it's so important. And I think people, people, a people like speaking to the man himself, but they, but they do like speaking to the chef. Yeah, I mean, I see people. I, I mean, I'm once I'm once I'm out, I'm actually fine. But getting out, you've got to try and build myself up to go out, go out. Which I don't know why, but once you're out, you're actually fine because people's faces light up if they had a great night. They'll they'll love chatting to you. You know, they love speaking about how you cook stuff and what you've been doing and what you're doing next. And you know, the, and they love saying that they've had a great night and what they're celebrating and why they're here and who's at the table and. And even we got a lot of people from White Gym coming up. We've had a good. I've got this. I've got to stock a bottle of Skipper's rum behind the bar now for people from Hoyt. Brilliant. Um, just to give them, just to give them that rum and milk when they ever arrive. But you know, it's um, and I think you just the best thing for a chef is to let people enjoy themselves. And once you're around the tables and you know people are happy, you, you, you can rest easy to see done a good day's work. I'd say. Do you? I know you, your family there, but do you go to Hoyt at all now? Still. I try to. I mean, I try to get down to the common riding. Um, I was there last year. I've been there most most years. Um, but yeah, I do. I mean, my brother's still there. My mum's still there. Um, so I do try and, and obviously a lot of friends are there, but a lot of friends have left. But, you know, we try and make a pact to, to the common riding. Some a lot of friends come back. So it's a good time to meet up um, as such. And But it's, it was, it's a big part of my life. And it's I suppose you call it home still. Um 
and the people that hike are great. You know, there's they're really good people. Moving slightly different. What are you into? Books. What what book would you recommend? Books. I just like good books, Gemma. I'm not great at reading. Um, you know, I but cookbooks. Yeah, I mean, I still think the squares are great cookbook, both the, the savoury and the sweet. Um, what's the latest one? I've not bought any for a while, to be honest. Uh, I thought the the Ritz is a, an amazing book. Um, I turned it down to Tumbry and got uh, John Willing to sign it uh, when he was there. Uh, I think that's. An, I think this, I think the Ritz just now is is on par with one of the any of the hotels in in, in the world just now. The food and um, I think John Williams has an incredible job in the last twelve years. Um, I think yeah. I mean that's two that I that stand out for me just now. I think there's obviously the classics. Um, we had Marco Pierre up at the Chester a few years ago, and I attended the White Heat book term and got him to sign it, which was you know an iconic book back in the day, and it still is a great book, you know. Iconic, iconic, all-round conic person. <laughs> he's such a character. He's uh, he's quite in depth, but such a such a character. Yeah. So where's 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 Kevin Douglas going forward? Uh, well, I mean, we've just got to keep pushing the restaurant. I think we're coming into a, a, I say I say quiet period as, as such that January, but I look back. At least we've got some history now that we can look back to see what we did. And last January we done we done actually okay, but you always worry that you're going to be slightly quiet. But I mean, we've just had a few inquiries for January, so January is looking fairly good. Um, and just keep being, you know, do what we do at the restaurant, build on the on the restaurant. Um, we've we've reinvested a lot in the restaurant um, with some art and some you know whiskey cabinets and wine cabinets. So you've got to keep reinvesting to a certain extent to make the restaurant look good, and then. You know, we're, we've got the opportunity to do a second place, which we're looking at just now, um, and see where that takes us. We're going to do a completely different concept to what we're doing at the the, the restaurant at Amuse. We'll we'll keep that. We'll keep pushing that more and more further up up, up scale, and we'll maybe introduce something. Some I say lower scale, but something less price point uh, that we can that everyone can enjoy and come two or three times a week. And you know, I still have a nice wine list. I still have the same. Ethos is cooking, buying local, you know, buying seasonal, exactly the same as we're doing it at Amuse, but just um, a slightly different tact. It's always good to have ambition and something to look forward to. Well, it keeps you going, doesn't it? Keeps absolutely, you going. absolutely. Kevin, what's the challenges? What what and what the industry faces? Uh, restaurants and I think for me, I think we we started our business at the peak time where the you know, the energy crisis was 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 uh, was really ravaging. I think, and you know, I'm known to me, we'd we'd obviously it's hard. It was hard to be a high risk, a high risk um, restaurant where a lot of you know energy companies wanted to take anyone on. So we, anyways, we got a deal, um, and I think obviously that was very difficult to to pay and you know you had to make a lot of money to try and just pay your electricity bill never mind anything else and then, and then the government don't really give you anything at all obviously the VAT's a big thing obviously it costs your VAT into your, your menu price but I think you know to make we think people think we're expensive because you know people don't realise you need to give 20% of that back to the VAT man 
before you do anything. And then obviously the rates again, you know, in England, I know it's a big burr on my, on my brothers. Um, in England, they're, they're getting a rebate at 75%, where in Scotland, we don't get anything. And and, and, and the frustrating thing is the government, you know, the, the British government have gave the Scottish government the money to factor this um, this in. So I don't know where the money's went or I don't know why the industry is not getting that rebate at 75%, which is really frustrating because, you know, if you cross the border in Carlisle or so, you know, you're going to get 75% less in your rates, which is just ridiculous that this, you know, the amount of people that are employed within the Scottish hospitality industry are having to sponge all this together. And it's going to be catastrophic in the next couple of years if people don't, or if the government as such don't really help or uh, be seen to be helping the, the industry. Especially when the, the 20% VAT was less during COVID. It was down. Yeah. I think that really helped kickstart a lot of business or, or really give them some breathing space to maybe, maybe to, to, you know, to make things cheaper. I mean, the whole thing about doing that was to help people get out. And if we reduce our VAT, reduce our prices, and, you know, that, you know, and people that can, can just afford to go, can maybe go out once or twice a month, you know what I mean? Because we can lower our prices, the government, you know, we obviously don't make as much money, but it really kickstarts the the industry. If, you know, even if it was twelve and a half percent, we'd we'd be something. But I think you know this twenty percent is just ridiculous, um, and I think it really inflates our prices to 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 people. That, you know, although people think we're expensive, but you know people don't really realise that before you do anything, you give twenty percent back to the government. Well, quite often in various tax formats, with income tax and that, that various governments throughout the world, when they've reduced the tax rate, their income has actually risen. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, they've just got to be, you know, in this day and age, they've just got to be realistic on what people are prepared to pay to go out. And, you know, you can see that with, with, the, with, the, with the pub trade in Scotland. I think... You know, I don't know how many pubs close and restaurants close, you know, on a weekly basis. But I think, you know, people, we never had, obviously, the, 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 the COVID never really affected us. But we started straight after COVID where, you know, the energy prices were rife. People weren't really coming out um, or they're just choosing to come out once a month or whenever it may be. But even we just see it now coming through, um, the restaurant is like getting busier. But we need footfall for us to survive as well because... If we don't have the footfall, if we don't have the support from our local people and, you know, any tourists in the summer that we get, you know, we're going to fall fall at our face as well. And if we don't get any help from the government, I'm not saying that we, we have to get help, but I think it'd be nice to get some help to try and, you know, secure our future within the industry. And, you know, I put stuff back to the industry to help, to help young people come. So, I mean, and, you know, I'd hate for me to stop doing that because, you know, you've got to look after the business. And if the business can't sustain you know, taking on young people, then it all falls in its face. And when you say the, I know, I know exactly what you're saying as far as the Scottish government get the money from Westminster, but in England, is the seventy-five percent rebate to hospitality or just in businesses and or small businesses or what? What is that? 
as far as I know, it's 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 businesses um, or small businesses. Um, you know, my brother's been fighting for this, and he's got he had a small gym in Hoyk, and he was fighting for the exact this because you know Hoyk's only you know fifteen miles from the, the English border, and it was, he was up in arms because you know his gym in in Hoyk was 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 paying seventy five percent more than a place place just across the border, which you know. In, in, in the true realistic thing, it's 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 a, it's a lot of money for small businesses to to absorb. Um, you know, it just gives us that fighting chance. But I think I don't know what the Scottish government, because apparently they've been given the money to pass it on to businesses, but it seems to have either disappeared or um, I don't know what's what's happened with it. But they really need to to give this this support um, in in some some way. Uh, shape or form, because um, a lot of people, a lot of good people, and I know a lot of restaurants that have closed lately. A lot of people that have worked hard all their life, and it just not became sustainable any for any longer. I know Stuart Divine, I'm friendly with Stuart, he's the managing director of the Ashvale fish. Obviously, that's a fish and chip trade. And he's very, very vocal on social media, anyway, and and he's he's involved in the federation of fish fryers, and and they certainly push. He certainly pushes it hard and very aggressive on social media, Twitter, and that trying to get that trying to get it across, but. That's the old problem. Who's listening? It's, I just hope that, I mean, Scotland's got such a great hospitality industry and people coming from all over the world to come here, to, you know. And we're only just now getting some really good restaurants and great hotels, worldwide hotels, you know, world-renowned hotels. Um, but we need to try and support these industries. We need to try and support the people within the industries because, you know, I know the margins that we try and make and they're very tight. And if we have to give, you know, more back to the government or the government takes more or if the electricity goes any higher, you know, we are very vulnerable to, to anything that the government does. So, which is a shame because we should be, we should be secure enough to run a business that we can invest in, you know, as I said earlier, younger people, um, and you know, if we don't, if we can't afford to do that, where does industry go from from here? Do you know what I mean? It's it's disappointing that there's just no incentive. There's no incentive, and I think the Scottish government really need to look hard themselves and say, look, we need to. I mean, I've noticed a difference in Aberdeen lately. You know, visit Aberdeen, visit Aberdeenshire, visit Scotland. They're doing a great job to get people here from all over the world. Um, if it's whiskey trails or golf and you know, Aberdeen needs to look elsewhere from the oil. And I think they're actually getting there now. The, the tourism numbers are, are starting to come in. Um, you know, we've got the, 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 the cruise ships coming into Aberdeen now. But we're not going to have any restaurants or hotels here to, to accommodate them unless we get some help from the government. Yeah, which is absolutely crazy when you think of it. Yeah, no, that's quite that's quite concerning, and it's as you say, it's nationwide. It's well, Scotland anyway. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at deep pockets or or a backer or or or, or other businesses that can you can pull from money 
from other business to secure that. You know, we're just a very small business and, you know, I've done this on my own. It's it's not as if we've got pots of cash sitting there just for a rainy day. You know, we're, you know, we work hard each month to try and make sure we've got enough money to pay, A, pay the staff. And then, <laughs> then the Batman just comes and takes his share anyway. But I think, I think we're very vulnerable to, to, to global global things and, and certainly energy. If the, if the energy prices spikes again, I think we'll be very vulnerable. Um, and I, there's only so much people are willing to pay to come out to eat, and we kind of keep passing on costs to to, the, to our guests because it's just not unfair, and we'll just be we'll just be priced out the market from the from the uh, and, and obviously the national companies are here as well. You know, the, the, it's very difficult for us independents to try and keep fighting off the costs. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. I mean, fishermen are very alike. I mean, their energy bills are just astronomical and when I, I was involved with a good friend of mine he bought a, he had a fishing boat built it new and in his projections when he was building it his sales if he grossed 40,000 a, a week a trip sorry if he grossed forty thousand pound a trip, his crew had a good wage, the boat, all the expenses were paid, and he was going ahead. He sold the boat. Twelve years later, and the, I built a new one, and the last trip of the boat, his fuel alone. Now the projections were forty thousand a week, and a trip, and everything was going ahead. His fuel bill alone for that trip was forty six thousand. Oh, jeez, it's unbelievable. I mean, to put it in our perspective, we when we looked at the the figures from uh, before we turn it over, you know, the average electric bill from the restaurant before we turn it over was about fifteen hundred quid a month. And now my last electric bill just last month was just under £8,000 a month. Oh. You just can't sustain that kind of costs. And it's just, and, and t- until the government does something with this energy crisis, or I like to call them other things, but I think, you know, at least dicked up and had a mask. I think... Um, I think we really need to look at small businesses and help them because you know we're very vulnerable to to, to energy costs and and there's only so much the government can do. Um, but I don't think they're just on a blind eye. I think it's just it's just not acceptable. Yeah, but although Dick Turpin had a mask, he also robbed the rich and gave it to the poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. There is that. And needy. <laughs> which is which is certainly not happening now. No. no, no, no. I think something really needs to get done because you don't want any, you don't want any more good restaurants going to the wall. Do you know what I mean? We're lucky we had a great first kind of year, and you know our positions are good for the second year. But I think it's always you know I worry you know on a daily basis to see what we've got in our books, and you know you always think it's going to fall off an edge or a cliff. Um, and I've just got to keep enough money in, in, in the bank each month to pay the staff and, and anything else is a bonus because, you know, it's, you, you, as you know, you don't make a lot of money in this trade. Um, 
you know, we're about pleasing people, but if 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 all these factors don't don't align themselves anytime soon, and there's a lot more good people going to go to the wall, um, which is such a shame because people work hard. You know, restaurants that have been going for 20, 30 years are, are falling left, right and centre until someone really takes a wake-up call to see what's going to happen. We're all, we're all going to be in, in, in the detriment of, of the government, really. It's terrible that such negative energy has well been used and you're saying there that you're concerned about the future, concerned about keeping staff and things like that, when your time should be spent... Where's your, what's what's your next product and what's your next menu and exactly that. I mean, I know they've done a lot at Aberdeen. Uh, I know Bob Keeler's done a lot of things in Aberdeen to try and kickstart Union Street. Um, but I mean, we, we're not we're we're not getting any at all of that. But and we're not far from Union Street. But I mean, I think there's, there should be more initiatives like that. But it shouldn't be private people that coming in to do that. The government we should be taking initiative for that. They should be forward thinking. Um, and, and, and thinking how can we you know you look, look at Aberdeen and the oil I mean I was you know I've been here 10 years and the oil's always been kind of slumped since I've been here but I think they really need to think and how they they can they can regenerate Aberdeen and, and I think they're thinking about it now but they should have done it 10 years ago but I think the Aberdeen Council are so backward thinking and you know Aberdeen should be a thriving city for the amount of money that's came through the city and in the last 50 years but it's you know it's probably one of the the well you can see it yourself the, the any high street's pretty poor now but i mean the amount of money that's came through aberdeen aberdeen town center or you know they should be booming it should be amazing looking but i don't know where all that money's went or it's just been you know and i'm not saying it's the council's fault by any stretch of means but something's went terribly wrong over the last 50 years here yeah which is which is a shame because it was a granite city, lovely buildings, and we just don't want to see boards up in the windows. Yeah, I mean, and you see that. I mean, they are now. I mean, I work down Queen's Road every day, and there are people now. They are the, the for sale signs have gone. There is there is a bit of of um, there is people purchasing these buildings and doing them up. So it's always a good sign to see things like that. Um, but I think it's only. It'll be a few years before we get back to where I think we should be, but you know the government could easily kickstart it a little bit quicker. I think and just you know be a bit forward thinking to see how they can how they can regenerate this. Uh, and and the hospitality can certainly do that. You know we are, you know I don't know how many people are employed in Aberdeen and in the hospitality sector, but it's a lot, and it's only going to keep growing if the oil dwindles. We need to we need to put the hospitality in the forefront because, as I said earlier, we're going to get cruise ships. We're going to get American golfers, we're going to get Norwegian golfers, we're going to get all over the world when they come and play Aberdeen because they'll come to St Andrews, they want to come to Aberdeen now because we've got some great courses here. We've got some amazing world-class whiskey trails and we just need the hospitality to fit in with that. And I think, you know, we've seen little nuggets of good restaurants popping up, some amazing hotels that are that are here. But we need to keep them all here because all these people are going to come, hopefully, and we need someone to to give them beds, we need someone to feed them, and we need to give them good hospitality. It's it's awful when you just listening to it. You're saying there and the, the quality. You know, it's a quality market. It's great products, fantastic golf courses. I've played Royal Aberdeen and St Andrews. You're 
as you say, the whiskey trail. It's all it's all high end quality stuff, and it's really disappointing to think that it's a, the actual what they're holding it all back is the, our Scottish government who should be at the forefront of promoting it. Yeah, they, they should see that. I mean, uh, they're, they're quick enough to, 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 take, to take their own money and, and, and run, but I think they need to really invest in, in Aberdeenshire if they want to try and keep the, the amount of people employed here because, you know, it's it's a great place to live and it's a great place to work. And But I think, you know, like the oil, I think they really need to take the, the, the bull by the horns and say, look, are we going to make this a worldwide destination? Because, you know, before I came to Aberdeen, why would he come to Aberdeen if he didn't, weren't associated in oil? You know, they're, they're, they're putting all the money into the whiskey trails, the 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 golfs are coming online. You know, there's, there's, there's everything here on your doorstep. And we just need to shout about it. And, but we need the infrastructure here within restaurants and, and hotels to accommodate these people that want to come here um, and, and make it, you know, just as good to, to go anyway as an Aberdeenshire at St Andrews, you know what I mean? Because they've... You know, even Fife's got some amazing places. Edinburgh, we're up against Edinburgh, a world-class city. You know, if we want any of the slice of that hospitality market, we need to make it appealing for people to come. Kevin, I was at Royal Dornoch. I'm, I'm now a member of the, a proud member of the Caithness and Sutherland Senior Golf. <laughs> <laughs> and we're playing in Dornoch. Just a couple of months ago, and and it's just taking me to my front of my mind exactly what you said there, because as we were getting organised and getting our tea times and clubs and bags and all that ready at the front, there was two Americans chatting to each other. They weren't together, but they obviously met up. And they were asking each other where they've played. And just exactly what you said, one of the guys turned to his mate the other and said, I've been in, I've played St Andrews, I've played Royal Aberdeen, and now I'm playing Royal Dornoch. <laughs> yeah. And, and people, and, and they'll travel because they want to have that experience. Do you know what I mean? And we need to be, Aberdeenshire needs to be just as good as is 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 the Highlands and Islands, which just as good as Edinburgh, just as good as as Fife, because we need to make it appealing for people to come and spend their money here. Because it, people do spend a lot of money to come across to Scotland, and we and and it is an expensive country to come. Out, I suppose you know to play the golf course is expensive, the whiskey is expensive, so we need we need places that they can come in and and dine and you know enjoy the whiskey and enjoy they're each other's company when they're here. So I think. We need that needs to be the forefront of the 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 local uh, government and obviously the, the the national government as well. And and enjoy the food they'll enjoy is local Scottish food. Well, that's what they try and they try and I mean, it's like anything. If you go on holiday, you know, to Spain, or whatever, you always look for the. You don't go to the 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 the, the big restaurants that sell the all day English breakfast. You try you try and find out the the local. Beautiful restaurants that that serve the local local fare because that's exactly what you want to go. You want to try and get a piece of Spain when you're there. So we find when the Americans come, when the Scandinavians come, they're looking for restaurants just like ours, 
that have got the, the nice whiskies that the that were not that they were knowledge about the whiskies that we compare whiskies with the local you know fish that we get from in from Peterhead and Scrubster and 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 the scallops from Orkney and that's that's exactly what we're trying to do and I think that's what you know we did need to keep that going and need to try and shout about Aberdeenshire because um, they'll go away and tell them they go back to America or Norway or Japan wherever they might come from and say they had a great time in Scotland and then they'll come back and that's what we want I'm just thinking from what you're saying there if they come to your restaurant by the time they get their cut on the VAT rates and the tax they would pay on the whiskey as well as the <laughs> well, it would be frightening to think how much of it all goes to the government, which is... Well, I, I always say we're just a cash cow for the government anyway, don't we? Yeah, but it's just holding it back, and it's it's a shame. It's really opportunity. It's sad, it's sad that they don't have the vision to see it themselves. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I think there's enough... There's enough... Um, there's enough noise now I think that the government need really need to even to start listening would be a good thing. And then, you know, I think if you lose any other good restaurants, I think they really need to stand up and, and, and do something because, you know, we the idea that I might come and say, Well, what's the point? You know, I'm just coming up I'm just working to pay to pay the staff. I'm not getting anything out of it. Or, you know, there's only so much loyalty you can do to the to the to the to the industry that you can keep going. I'm not saying that I will do, but I mean there might be a day that if the government doesn't intervene anytime soon, you'll say, "Well, why should I bother?" And then, you know, if I close, it's 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 a shame because there's there's twenty staff dependent on me, you know, getting out of bed every morning and making making it work and making it work for them, um, and you you don't get any help whatsoever from 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 anywhere from the government, which is is it's such a crying shame. And you can see my my tones kind of change to the to the bubbly guy I was earlier when we were talking about halibut and turbot and langoustines <laughs> and scallops. <laughs> well, it's it, yeah, but it's it's all relative and it's terrible that that is that's that is the case because they are it is a stifling factor. It's stifling ambition and the ambition in you people like yourself. Yeah, the, the biggest shock I, I did get, Jim, when was you know, you know, I was never a businessman by any means, but you kind of fall into it and. And I think, you know, you've got to have your finger in each pulse. And, you know, we did have a great year and we did make a little bit of money. And then I found out that the government take 20% of that too. And I was like, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> it's just, and you pay the corporation tax, which I think is all a bit bit wrong, really, to be honest, because you work hard to try and, try and make a bit of money to try and invest. And the only, you know, we, we invested all the money that we could back into the business. And then the, the guy comes along and takes another 20% off you, which is just, Totally ridiculous, but anyways, that's a, a learning curve for you. As long as I have a bed every morning and, and focus on what we need to do and keep above water, and, and if we can get through this, you know, next couple of years to where we are just now, and if the government does give us a bit of relief or a bit of, you know, a bit of less tax, I think we'll 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 benefit us all in the in the long term. Yeah, but it's. I hope the messages go out and the trade bodies shoot, shoot louder. Yeah, we just need to lobby the government more and, and just be more active and a bit more aggressive and 
and demand that we get some someone to listen to us because, as I say, we can't keep sustaining these these costs any 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 longer. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kevin. I think we'll wrap it up at that and uh, wish you the best. And hopefully, all this turns changes and it's all positive coming I hope forward. So. And I we hope do. So. I'm sure we will. Even getting the like of the rates rebate that it's not like you're wanting something that nobody else has. It, it did that something that doesn't stop on the border. Yes, I mean there's a lot of things we could stop at the border, but I think I think uh, that's one of them we don't. And I think it just makes it a level playing field for for us in Scotland to try and you know do what we do in Scotland and, and welcome tourists and locals to our, to our restaurant. I think if we get any any little help would be great. Um, but I'll keep working hard as long as I can to make, make it a success. And I'm quite sure, as we said earlier, if you want to do it, I'm quite sure we'll be fine. Yeah, uh, well, hopefully. And it's good uh, that you're keeping a positive view on it. Although it's against the tide as far as the government are concerned. No, it sh- they, shouldn't be, they shouldn't be against you. No, no, no. Well, She'd be encouraging we'll you, encouraging you, and helping you. Yeah. And fight. It Absolutely. shouldn't be a keep fighting. It should be keep working together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But until someone really listens, uh, yeah, we'll not get much further. Yeah, keep at it. Have you heard the saying? We make better grandparents and parents because by then we have more <laughs> time. Well, I hope so. I like you taking a restaurant on at 50. Never mind. How old were you when you done yours? I was 52 and I opened it. Oh, well. well I've, just, I've got two years on you then, Jill. <laughs> Great stuff. 